0: Today is a little bit of a unique Sunday because we've got Vince joining in remotely. Hi Vince, how are you?
1: Hello everybody.
0: Technology is so cool. Also, I've got Vince on a screen up here, so if it looks like I'm just speaking to nothing, I'm speaking to Vince. <laughs> um, but this week has been unique. We've both been at different conferences. So my conference that I went to was online and it was called Evolving Faith. Um, Sarah Bassey and Jeff Chu have put together this conference of really wonderful speakers that I got to engage with in an online format. And Vince, where have you been?
1: Yeah, I was in North Carolina this last uh, week for five days uh, with Brad, who may or may not be sitting next to me. And now we're, where are we? Um, gal- gal- uh, I'm positive I'm not saying that correctly, but we're somewhere <laughs> along our road home uh, and uh, pulled over for some Wi-Fi so I can join in today.
0: Uh,
1: oh, and I should tell you where I was. Yeah, we, we were at uh, uh, a conference called Theology Beer Camp, and it's almost exactly what it sounds like. It's <laughs> lots of theology. Uh, there was plenty of craft beer to enjoy And then, uh, but it's not quite a camp, it's more like a conference feel. Uh, But it was really, really enjoyable. Lots of really cool names. We've mentioned the Bible for Normal People quite a bit at uh, our church. And um, uh, Pete Enns from the Bible for Normal People was one of the keynote speakers there. Uh, Somebody that we've mentioned before, Diane Butler-Bass, was the the bring-it-home ringer at the end of this uh, conference, and she was really wonderful. Uh, And then lots of other biblical scholars who are not well-known Uh, because they're just academics, but it was really, really fun to learn from them.
0: Awesome. So great. So now we get to kind of report back to you from those conferences. So I think some of the things that we have taken away will weave their way into what we're talking about today. Um, But for the month of October, we have been talking about and will continue to be talking about texts of terror. So this is using a phrase from biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble, and she talks about how stories from the Bible can be used as tools of terror. They're difficult to accept at face value, they require a lot of wrestling, they're problematic. And why this matters for all of us, not just for those of us who are actively reading scripture, is because the Bible is all around us. Whether we are aware of it or not, we have been formed by interpretations of the Bible, some really redemptive and some really crappy. And so because of this, no matter how often we personally pick up the Bible, we can all influence how it is evoked in our culture. We can participate in moving away from terrorizing applications toward life-giving applications. The way we've been putting this is helping to shift the narrative when it comes to Scripture. So for today, uh, we are narrowing in on Paul. One of our survey responses, we sent out a survey asking for your input on what texts of terror to cover in this series, and one of the responses was just, Paul, LOL. So today, is talking about Paul, LOL. The letters of Paul, or what's attributed to Paul, which we'll come back to, makes up a large portion of the New Testament. Letters, these are letters between an author and a particular community experiencing particular joys and challenges, conflicts, and celebrations. In Paul, we see a lot of really beautiful encouragements and some profound theology and wonderings about Jesus. And we see some really difficult passages, which is why it made the list. At Evolving Faith, the conference that I was at, there was a panel on scripture And I found it really interesting that the majority of the panelists cited some part of Paul's writings as a text that they have trouble with. They were asked um, the simple question of, what's one passage that makes you angry when you read it? And the majority of them quoted something from Paul. Um, So this is not an uncommon feeling that Paul is difficult. And why is this? When we look at Paul's writings, they're largely instructional. They're written to particular communities. There's household codes and lists that seem to almost micromanage behaviors, and it's easy to try and apply these as a code of ethics to follow. But as we've talked about this pa- the past couple weeks, instead of a code of ethics, we're trying to look at the Bible as a wisdom book. Paul's writings as a code of ethics gets really dicey. But what does it look like to view Paul's letters as a book of wisdom instead? So we're gonna treat this week kind of like a grab bag of different ideas that came up when Vince and I were in conversation earlier this week. So before we jump into that, Vince, do you have anything to add here?
1: No, just that uh, this week, I I feel like I got a bunch more things that I wanna share about along these lines. So I better not say anything now or else it'll get too long.
0: All right, so let's jump in then. So the first idea that we're going to talk about today is viewing Paul as a preacher versus a speaker. So we've got both of these categories. And um, this is a new outlook on Paul that I encountered. Vince has already mentioned the Bible for Normal People. So this was an episode of that podcast where they were interviewing um, pastor and theologian Nadia Boltz-Weber. And Nadia started talking, um, she started off by describing the difference in tone she has when she's in different roles, when she has different types of authority. So when she is a preacher, when she's in that role, she hopes that someday, years from now, if someone got a hold of her sermon notes and they removed all of the pop culture references and jokes, they would look at what was left and say, this is a word of God. However, when she is a speaker, because she gets a lot of speaking engagements, she still has some authority, but she says that her words are largely just her snobby opinions on things. And so she hopes that if someday someone got a hold of those manuscripts, they wouldn't look at things and say, this was a word of God. They would say, this is the opinion of Nadia. And so the problem, or really the interesting thing with Paul is that sometimes he's a speaker and sometimes he's a preacher. His words hold different weight in different modes of writing. And sometimes his words are cultural references and jokes and his snobby opinions about things. So issues arise when we view Paul's words across the board with the same amount of weight and influence.
1: Haley, one passage that I think about along these lines, where Paul is just being a speaker and maybe not being a preacher, is one that um, there's this very random reference in First Corinthians 11, and uh, Paul makes this isn't it obvious comment of why women must wear head coverings because of the angels, and and he just like and then moves on and goes on to the next point, and you know I think that's something where like. Paul is opinion, you know, opinion, opining. Is that the word? Opining, uh, making an opinion on something that matters to his culture, um, but clearly it doesn't matter to our culture. Like uh, we, uh, the head coverings and the angels. That's not really something that we're losing sleep about, and uh, and so I think I think that's a good example of something we can see and say. Okay, yeah, that's that's there and. It's a symbol of the culture that Paul was writing in, but it's not something that we have to squeeze authority out of um, or some really important message that applies to today. It's okay to see that and think and be puzzled and be like, okay, let me move on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's helpful to be able to sort out the different types of phrases that he's using and the things that his audience would have said like, oh yeah, or they even would have chuckled at. And we try to read it, and we're like, what is the meaning of this? And how must I structure my life around it? But sometimes it's just his opinions about things. Vince, do you wanna um, head over to our next idea here?
1: Yeah, the next thought we had was um, headings in the text might be a good, in in, in the Bible, might be a good grab bag thing to go to. Uh, If you are reading an English translated Bible, you will often see little breaks in the text um, that break up verse 5 and verse 6 and something and then insert a little heading to help you understand what's coming up next. And those things can be really helpful, but they are also um, they are inserted by editors much later. They're inserted by uh, translators of the Bible. And one of the famous examples of where this can confuse us, where this can... This can get uh, it can lead to us misinterpreting uh, bits of scripture. Is from Ephesians five, which is one of the letters that's attributed to Paul. He is writing uh, household codes; they're called, which is a common thing that would have been done in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. And uh, where where a heading is placed uh, is between. Uh, if uh, if I had a Bible right in front of me, I could show you. But most English Bibles you go to. We'll, uh, we'll have a heading placed in between verse 21 and verse 22 of Ephesians 5. And when you read it that way, what it, what it says is um, verse 21 is the end. It looks as though verse 21 is the, is the summary of the previous section, and verse 22 begins the next section. And the, the statement in verse 21 is, all, um, all must submit to one another. And then there's a break and it said, household codes. And then the first line of the next passage is, women submit to your husbands. Has anyone ever heard this passage before? Now when you insert the header there, it really changes the way that you understand this. Because the first line of a sentence is often what you think, well, that's what's gonna go on now. And so this part of this passage is about women submitting. But interestingly, in later translations of the uh, Bible, more recent translations, they have corrected this mistake. And so what they've done is they've moved. If you're looking at a more recent uh, publication of the English translated Bible, the heading comes before verse 21 so that the beginning of this passage that's about household codes is all must submit to one another. And then it goes on to talk about women, and then it goes on to address men, and then it goes on to address others of the household, and it totally changes the meaning just from headings. So I do think this is one of those things that we, it, it feels worth to bring up when we talk about Paul being used as text of terror, or any of us having uh, a, a role in it, showing people what a narrative about the Bible is, because it's not widely known That there's all of these translation choices and interpretive choices. There's a there's like the Bible is not simple and obvious, and it's important for us to show the world that there's there's, it's rather complex. All of the choices that are made, often by people who look like me, white men, um, about what the text ends up looking like when we actually read it, and want to add we want to add texture and complexity to the conversation about the Bible in the world because that helps it not be so like. Um, If somebody has the Bible used against them in a terrorizing way, they don't have to think like, well, that's just the Bible. They can think, oh, that's one application of the Bible, but it's not the only application.
0: Yeah, we often don't really think about, because we have this finished product in front of us and we're not usually pulling up multiple translations all at the same time, um, we don't really think about how translation in itself is an act of interpretation. Um, and we, when we look at the headings themselves specifically, I can remember being taught how to read critically in grade school, how to like actually be processing what you're reading, and one of the first steps, they had it all laid out for us, and one of the first steps was to read any title and headline, and how much that influences what we're actually processing and colors the rest of what we're reading. And so remembering that these headings weren't added until much later uh, is really helpful, that they're not actually necessarily even tied to what's being written, they're all interpretive choices. Historically, there are so many layers of interpretation that you're working with. You have an original audience either listening to stories that were passed along orally or hearing letters being read publicly for the first time and then You've got people, sometimes even years later, writing down their thoughts, writing down stories, going from language to language. And now we have the product of these different translations actually holding different values and beliefs, and that that is asserted in the act of editing and translating. It's not separated out. Um, one example here is that in Romans 16, 1, Paul introduces Phoebe a woman and in some translations she's referred to as a deacon of the church so having some role and some amount of power and then in some translations she's introduced as a servant of the church so even just that one word deacon or servant so
1: different so different yeah,
0: it says a whole lot about what the the board of translators or whoever was interpreting um it says a whole lot about their thoughts on women in leadership Let's see here, we can go to our our next idea on authorship. So we've been referring to this body of work as being written by Paul, this collection of letters. And it's likely, if not certain, that not all of the letters attributed to Paul were actually written by Paul. And this isn't some act of deceit necessarily, like people pretending to be Paul to have more authority. Um, This actually happens with other biblical books as well. It turns out that maintaining and passing along ancient manuscripts gets a little confusing sometimes. Who knew? So we have this finished product of the Bible, like I talked about, um, of the widely accepted books, what's referred to as the canon. But part of the editing process that we mentioned was choosing from thousands of manuscripts for what was going to make it in. If an author was unknown along the route of being compiled and translated, Paul's name could have been attached to a piece of writing and soon it was just accepted as being written by Paul. Another ancient practice was actually to adopt the name of a writer or speaker or teacher that you admired and that you were trying to emulate Paul. So it's possible that some writers took on the name of Paul because that was someone that they were trying to emulate, that they really admired. And yes, all of this matters. Authorship matters. It allows you to better contextualize what's being written. There's a whole lot of scholarship out there on which books Paul actually wrote and who the other authors might be. And for the purpose of our conversation today, I think for me it comes down to the fact that the content of the letters is included in a holy collection, regardless of who wrote what. I'm more concerned about how content is being used as a weapon or what is problematic for affirming women or celebrating the LGBTQ community. It's really what the words look like in action that matters most to me. So maybe thinking of these books as being written by Paul and friends instead of just Paul might be helpful for you if the words seem inconsistent as you're reading different letters. However, I would bet that most of us aren't particularly concerned with linguistic inconsistencies across the letters of Paul. (laughs) I don't think that that's our main issue here. I think most of us are more concerned with why women are being told to stay silent and why slavery seems to be supported. (laughs) So if we do take the time to actually look at Paul as more than just words on a page, as a full person behind the writing, he was actually pretty radical compared to his contemporaries. He was doing what he could within the cultural context he was a part of. He was doing the best with what he had. And yes, he benefited from some amounts of power, but he was also imprisoned during some of his writings. So it's interesting to me that content written by someone who would have been seen as radical in his time is now weaponized by people who would probably identify as more conservative.
1: One interesting thing that I did learn this week, Haley, I was in a conversation last night with one of the biblical scholars that presented uh, some very interesting research to us, and she was explaining uh, that on the topic of Paul, um, the one of the earliest uh, letters that we have that it, scholars believe is definitely Paul writing, the Apostle Paul, is Galatians. And the reason people any of us might know the book of Galatians offhand is from one of the most uh, beautiful parts of the Bible. I think one of the parts that most meaningful to me, uh, Paul says in Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. And it is this kind of powerful uh, call for equity. Uh, And um, what this uh, biblical scholar was suggesting um, is that some of the uh, letters that are less likely Paul that uh, might be attributed to uh, people who were friends of Paul or disciples of Paul and wanting to write in Paul's name? Uh, is that uh, we we can actually see a story developing where um, Paul is this radical, like you're kind of like some of the uh, I think certain reads of Paul can help us to see, but then as Christianity is gaining a foothold among the masses, there is this tension where if we're going to see this thing survive, we need to moderate Paul. And so there is. this is not certainly what the case is, but one suggestion is that a lot of the uh, the household codes like I just read in Ephesians, uh, or there's another one in Colossians. And these books are, these letters are maybe written by Paul or maybe by disciples of Paul. Maybe they were doing an effort to sort of moderate, tamp down the radicalness of Paul so that this, this uh, fledgling movement wouldn't die uh, and wouldn't be like snuffed out by the empire. And that's a very plausible theory. It's not definitely what was going on, but it could be what was going on uh, as these letters are writing. And so some of the power of um, digging into these scriptures, is, as as problematic as they might be, is to see that story developing of what was going on in the first century after Jesus. Uh, and you can see tensions, and that's okay.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to think of that happening within the context of scripture itself, and not just as an afterthought to scripture or as um, generations afterwards referring to this one absolutely certain um, consistent text and then having it unfold, but actually think of it as unfolding in the moment and as it's being actively written is really interesting. Um, another scholar that I heard recently that this was interesting to me too, her name's Sarah Rudin and she is, um, she studies sacred literature. And her argument for translating and looking at authorship here isn't narrowing in on exact and precise translation, which sometimes people will really focus in on. But she refers to her own work as getting inside the mind of Paul or getting inside the mind of Jesus. And so seeing people as full people, Um, seeing Paul as being sarcastic in places or making jokes or seeing the disciples and friends of Paul as doing the same thing, at times being self-righteous, that getting behind the tone of the author and into the mind of the author is actually a tool of translation. So there's far less mental gymnastics that we have to do when you just accept that opinions and this unfolding of translation that you're talking about, Vince, that that is a product and an actual feature of what's being written. It's not um, something that's a fluke or something that we have to struggle with.
1: Yeah, and all of these things, I think, can lead us to a deeper understanding—they're not threats to the Bible being useful to us. Um, if we can, if we can dig into this, it's a, it's a, it's sort of like the sandbox gets bigger, and that's not a that's not a that's not a bad thing. That's like, oh my gosh, there's so much more here than I thought. Uh, how wonderful! Maybe there's more chance for me to meet God in the midst of this. Maybe there's a chance for us to, as we narrate the Bible for the world around us, we—that's one of the pitches of this series—is that all of us have uh, a sort of part in that because the Bible is everywhere maybe we can complexify the image of it in a way that is so useful because then it's more likely that people can see, despite the terrorizing applications of the Bible, there are also beautiful ones.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, Do you want to move to our, our next one here?
1: Yeah, so um, a phrase I learned in biblical studies, my own studies, uh, that's always felt really helpful to me is adopting and adapting, that any biblical writer, Paul included, is adopting and adapting. Uh, what's going on. And in, in, in a way, any of us who wish to write about uh, God or write about faith today are always adopting and adapting. We're adopting the culture that we are in because we can't do anything else. We are all cultural pe- people, uh, but we adapt uh, what we feel about those things. We uh, we maybe take that culture and then we suggest maybe something slightly countercultural. We are adapting all the time, even as we are adopting. Uh, like this uh, household code that uh, we mentioned uh, a bit ago. So th- this, in, in the greco world of Paul, uh, we uh, there were lots of these sorts of things, household codes. It's the ancient equivalent of like the life hacker column, like best kitchen hacks. You know, It's like best household hacks according to... This Stoic philosopher, or something like that, uh, and the household code of Ephesians uh, that we that I was mentioning before uh, w- can be compared to other household codes of that time, and uh, and that can that can help us learn something. So there, uh, one of uh, another famous ones is, is from Stoic philosopher Arius Didymus, and uh, let me read for a second his household code. And then uh, I'll mention again what the content of uh, Paul's household code code in Ephesians 5. So this is Arius Didymus. This is not from the Bible. This is from somewhere else. It says this. A man has the rule of this household by nature, for the deliberative faculty in a woman is inferior. In children, it does not yet exist. And in the case of slaves, it is completely absent. Okay, so hear me out. That is not in the Bible, but that is a household code that is contemporary with the Bible. And against that backdrop, Paul writes that women and men should be submitting to each other in, in in mutual submission, and addresses women, doesn't just address men. And in in if we were to tease that uh, scripture out even further, there are countless ways in which uh, Paul's household code, when compared to his culture, is radical, like you were saying. And so there, there's kind of like new eyes to see him uh, when we can understand this idea of adopting. And adapting, yes, Paul is adopting his culture because that's the only thing he can do. But he's also adapting it if we have eyes to see what his culture was like. And uh, this is important for for those of us, I think, even um, even for those of us who don't regularly pick up the Bible or are not terribly familiar with us. Uh, it, it's important because we don't have to accept the premise that the Bible obviously says women are inferior. We don't have to accept that premise. And, and the more that we can, again, like spread narratives about what the Bible is and what it's about that are not, obviously the Bible is fill in the blank with some terrorizing thing. That's not true. We need to continually present the more beautiful applications of the Bible because they are out there too. And obviously it being anything is just, that, that's not, that's false. That, that's, that's speaking past your, your expertise. And, uh, and we, we should not let those things slide. We should complex the picture of the Bible in a good
0: way. Yeah, we see this too um, with different lists in Paul, I think, um, with like virtues and roles and things like that, that they're not exhaustive of what's actually, like we look at Paul as like, oh, this is the the extent of what it looks like to be someone who's following Jesus. And those are the only things that we try to follow versus like that he was just following a writing style of the day that was... um, a particular structure or script or style of writing and so it doesn't have to make it exhaustive.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. I love also I'm looking in the in the chat right now in discord and Erica, one of our seminary friends um, has dropped a link to um, African-American readings of Paul and um, This is it says African-American readings of Paul reception resistance and transformation. That's really that's a fascinating title So I'm curious about this. I think it, it kind of opens the door to another thing is not just do we have a, a, a requirement to understand a little bit more of the cultures that Paul uh, that Paul that circles around Paul and what he's speaking into and what he's adopting and adapting, but also when we read from a different current perspective, because there are lots of perspectives out there uh, in our world too. Not just not, not everybody looking at the Bible today doesn't come to the same conclusions. When we look at different uh, from different lenses at these different scriptures, new things can be discovered. And I just think that that's, that this is a wonderful reminder to do that. So thanks, Erica, from afar here.
0: Yeah, thank you, Erica. Um, One more thing I want to toss in here too, Barbara Brown Taylor, who's another one of my favorites, um, in her session at Evolving Faith, had this really simple statement that stayed with me, and she said that the Bible is the pointer, not the point. Um, So if we think about that— Excellent. Love that. Yeah. The Bible is the pointer, not the point. And so with that, God is beyond the Bible, which may seem obvious, but I think for some people it's hard to think of the progression of our understanding of God going beyond this text that we have. And so the message of hope and liberation is still actually being written, and this helps us not have to get caught up in certainty or airtight arguments when it comes to Scripture that we have this tension of people trying to claim that the Bible is a living word, which is a term that's often used, but trying to look at its ethics as a frozen in time rule book. Um, So it's hard for me to understand that contradiction there of the Bible being living, but it's also frozen in time ethics. Um, That doing this work doesn't diminish the meaning found in the Bible, but it allows us to creatively reinterpret things. Um, Brian McLaren at this, one of his sessions, said that we honor the efforts of our ancestors by building upon them, which often means moving beyond them. So this gets at that adopting and adapting that you're talking about. And he even goes one step further and says that we have a moral obligation to do this. We have a moral obligation to build upon and then move beyond.
1: That's excellent. I love adopting and adapting is happening within the scriptures itself. And then also we need to continue to adopt and adapt. That feels really, that feels right on.
0: Yeah. So we had one, um, another survey result that tied into this topic really well in a particular verse. So Vince, I would love if you could um, walk through this passage with us and kind of talk through some different options for interpreting.
1: Yeah, definitely. One particular verse that came up in our survey, um, not just somebody who was talking about Paul in general, but one specific message in Paul is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 through 35. I'll read it for us here, and then uh, I'll offer a couple of options for us. Um, So, uh, women should remain silent in the churches, 1 Corinthians 14 says. They are not allowed to speak.
0: should probably go sit down.
1: <laughs> I, was, I was like tr- making sure to like drop in. I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 14. This is not Vincent speaking. Uh, <laughs> they, they are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So that's not, no, that's not problematic at all, right? That's easy to understand. <laughs> Obviously, there's a reason this one ends up in our Texts of Terror uh, survey. Um, so I wanna offer two scholarly options. Um, there are lots of options for dealing with Texts of Terror, like I uh, brought to us last week. Um, let me kind of walk through two options, and then, and then I wonder what you all think about these. So the first option is in the spirit of the first approach that I brought us to last week, modeled by Jesus in Luke chapter four, when he quotes the Hebrew prophet Isaiah from his Bible, but intentionally leaves out Isaiah's evoking of violence and tribalism. So Jesus shows us there how to receive all the good from his tradition, uh, from his sacred text, to critique what excludes or what harms, and then pass on the tradition of and that sacred text stronger and more loving and more resilient. That's Jesus' model there in Luke chapter four. Some scholars would argue uh, that we sh- and, and, and encourage us to do the same here with Paul. So we can receive all the good that Paul has handed us, as we've been discussed elsewhere, uh, and then we can intentionally critique the patriarchal ways that he reflected his culture, like this passage. And in so doing, we can pass on the Christian tradition and the Bible more loving, more inclusive. We don't delete this or pretend it's not there. We openly critique it to remind ourselves of the importance of humility, rather than pretending that we had things right from the beginning of time. So that is, we, we take that, mo- that model of Jesus in Luke 4, that's one scholarly option here. Bill, uh, yeah, I, I see Beth putting in, in the chat, build a, upon and go beyond. Ooh, that's, mm-hmm. oh dang, hold on, that, that had some like <laughs> ring to it. We, I, it's, I, mm-hmm. A lot of the people who were at this uh, conference that I was just at were like Baptists, and so they made a lot of jokes about like, you know, three points that all have the same first letter or something that rhymes. So, man, build upon and go beyond. Way to go, Beth. That's a good one. <laughs> um, and uh, and so that, that, I suppose, is one option for us, to build upon and go beyond. Another scholarly option, though, for understanding this passage that we just read uh, is in the spirit of the second approach I talked about last week, where we, um, drawing from a sacred text, um, Uh, How do we draw from a sacred text for modern purposes? We turn to scholars and historians and trusted resources to dig into the culture and the language and the specific situations of the original audiences of these texts. And if we can do that, we can better understand what exactly was being addressed then and there. And it teaches us not, you know, what we find there is not a frozen in time ethic, but we find something that can move beyond. Um, we can figure out what is the trajectory of wisdom in that way. So, so um, for this passage in particular, these scholars say that this, uh, this passage that we just read about women remaining silent and they should go and talk to their husbands when they're at home, this is evidently, according to these scholars, addressing a specific situation with certain women in certain gatherings uh common to their context rather than trying to comment about women in general in all contexts in particular they suggest that some evidence that within the socioeconomically diverse gatherings of jesus followers in the first century that was a very uncommon thing the poor were with the poor the you know uh supporters of their Roman Empire who had kind of like given up on their cultural heritage to get some status they hung out with them and the upper class hung out with the upper class and it was not it was not mixing um, but uh, what was happening in the early Jesus communities was that there was a lot of mixing of socioeconomic status and some women of status in Greco-Roman society uh, at, uh, according to these scholars, we're not paying attention to how much space their speech was taking up in sort of a way that was like leaving out others. Um, it, we would use the word today privilege to, um, to they are blind to their privilege and that that's affecting things. Uh, also, uh, supporting this idea that this is about specific contexts is that elsewhere in Paul's writings, Paul refers to women in leadership and in speaking positions frequently. Uh, So this could not be a blanket prohibition on women in leadership because elsewhere in Paul's writings, like he he's referring in passing to women in leadership and in speaking roles.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting here because even though at face value, it's saying something really awful and limiting for women. It actually helps us understand better that when women are referred to in the Bible, that's not one flat stagnant category of people that like one woman is representing all women. Um, so it actually makes the text more dynamic and it makes it makes the view of women um, in an ancient context more dynamic as well, that there were some who carried more privilege than others, especially when you're talking about socioeconomic status. And what does it look like to um, be aware of privilege and things like that in an ancient context? Um, it looks different than it does today, but it's also helping us understand women as this diverse group instead of just one category where everyone's the same.
1: That's exactly right. We we have to be wary of that in our own context today, and many would 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 uh, caution us on speaking for minority groups as though they're you know all monolithically believe the same thing. That's 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 really like I mean that that's just kind of adding to the condescension of minority groups in our in our world, uh, and the same the same would be true years and years and years ago. It's just harder to see that because we're so far removed, and so we you know we can only we can only hold in our mind like one sentence to explain the ancient world, but that's not the case. Of course, it was complex, just like it's complex now.
0: Well, Vince, do you have any closing thoughts here before I close our time together?
1: Yeah, I, I think I would just say um, on this last piece of like visiting a specific text and then taking two different approaches to refer or to in helping us deal with that terrorizing text and turn our, our, our attentions and hopefully uh, help turn the attention of, of our entire culture toward more beautiful applications of the Bible. It's important for us to remember that like no one take rules them all, right? Diversity in opinion is a strength. And the parts of the Christian tradition that are most worth, lis- most worth listening to are those that make space for minority opinions, not just dominant ones. For all of its flaws, interestingly, Catholicism does this much better than Protestantism. The legacy of Protestantism is if we disagree, we just start a new denomination. But in Catholicism, there is this thing that's allowed for called minority opinions. Now the Catholic church doesn't necessarily do a great job of reminding people that minority opinions exist. There's still a lot of power problems, uh, in the Catholic church, but it is important to recognize that, um, when we, when we uh, conceive of like understanding the Bible or trying to help people understand the Bible in a way that's like, here's the take. And then once you learn that piece, you move on to the next thing because you got that one figured out. That's where we're in danger. Um, because somewhere along the lines, Uh, one of those things is gonna be taken to terrorize another. And that's when we get into situations where people are ending up being hurt by the Bible. Yeah.
0: Something I would add here too, when we're thinking about our overall view of kind of piecing together these different interpretations for what feels helpful and life-giving and not terrorizing. um, Barbara Brown Taylor, who I mentioned earlier, during her talk this weekend, she instructed people to think of your interpretation of the Bible as making a quilt, not flipping through pages, um, so that you may have assembled pieces of this quilt during different times, from different influences in your life. Maybe you have a religious background and you can kind of see how different pieces of the stories came together. Maybe you've picked up things kind of secondhand and from phrases and stories that you've heard um, just by being immersed in wider culture. And she says that some patches of the quilts maybe stained or really threadbare or missing altogether. But this is a humbling approach because you can take a step back and see how someone else pieced together their own quilt and how it's kept them really warm in um, cold times, that we don't all have to arrive at the same picture, the same quilt, that would actually be really boring, um, but that we do this work in community and we all have our own end result. And then this is me building upon her words, but I think the problematic thing is when you're uh, using your quilt to try and like suffocate other people. <laughs> um, like. Your quilt is meant to be something that keeps you warm and something beautiful. And so when we try to move away from these terrorizing applications to something more beautiful, we can have this piece together collective um, that's really beautiful and really comforting. Um, and some of this- I love
1: the done. dark turn that analogy took. <laughs> that was excellent.
0: Well, cause that is the, I mean, this terrorizing thing is real. Like it's not just, oh, you can have your own picture over there. It's when, when your version Absolutely. starts to harm Absolutely. other people then that's Yeah what
1: this is this isn't just like everybody hold hands and listen to each other. This this is this is serious. This is this is harm and harm reduction and alleviating suffering.
0: Yeah, because all of this conversation that can be academic and intellectual has really embodied um, end results and so I think that that's really important to remember. But I would love to close our time our portion of our time together with some prayer. So if you get in a comfortable position, I'll lead us through a prayer exercise as we close. I invite you to imagine your own quilt now, the different stories that have formed you, maybe from the Bible, maybe from your own family traditions, your favorite books words that you've picked up that are meaningful, all of the piecing together. Would you imagine your quilts and all of its pictures and colors, the way it's been sewn together? Maybe the spaces that have been ripped apart or cut open. Would you just take a moment to think of the stories that have formed you? And God, I am grateful that you are the one who helps to weave things together, that all of this diversity of thought and different ways to interpret a word of God brings us into a deeper understanding of of you and of one another. Thank you that this is communal work, that we can look to all of these different voices and scholars and people around us um, and friends who have found really life-giving pieces of scripture that we can weave and incorporate that into our own quilts. And God, I ask that as we continue to do this work, we would arrive at something that is comforting and beautiful, something that inspires the people around us instead of terrorizing the people around us. God, that we can help to shift the narrative toward more beautiful things. Amen.